I'm Mitch Owens, Decorative Arts Editor of Architectural Digest, and welcome to the AD Aesthete. Wallpaper, once scorned as fussy, has come back into style of late with powerful patterns and brilliant palettes. But the genre's history is deep and even surprising. In the 18th and early 19th centuries, for instance, current politics, world exploration, and even wars became subjects of papers that decorated one's private rooms. Carol Thibault Pomerantz, the world's leading dealer in antique wallpapers, and Christopher Orstrom, co-founder of the handmade wallpaper firm Adelphi Paper Hangings, join me in discussing wall coverings past and present, some of its more provocative designs, and a mode of creation that remains as laborious and exacting as it was more than 200 years ago. I hope you enjoy the show. I think it's very interesting that in the last several years, wallpaper has come back into a, a really strong amount of popularity. People are using it. You see it everywhere. You see patterns on Instagram. People like that so much more than any other sort of plain color. They like the pattern. Um, you're seeing wallpaper used in ways that it, it should be in, in even in modern interiors. When when did we start seeing wallpaper as a decorative creation? Well, it started um, it started very early on. The first ones that were were found in the, were in the 16th century, the English papers. Um, and at the beginning, they were being used to line boxes, screens, and also rare books. And then it was gradually, as uh, they became a little more decorative, that they found their way to the walls. And it really is starting the mid-18th century that these uh, papers became beautiful decors and a mural art form in its own right uh, as tapestry or fresco paintings or even painting. And um, from then on, the mid 18th century, up until through the Art Deco period, I think it, it went through many different, very interesting creative phases. It was just another um, way to decorate your walls. And it really revolutionized the, the concept of interior decorating, interior design and spaces. Uh, that was really the great impact because originally, uh, let's not forget that this was the art of trompe l'oeil to give you an illusion of another kind of environment. So I think that's, uh, that's one of the points that I wanted to make. What do you think, Chris? Well, I would amplify that just a little and say that, you know, the way that I think about wallpaper, I think some, one of the earliest examples is in a ceiling in Oxford in one of the libraries there, very, very early. And it's, basically an attempt to fake a coffered ceiling. And then uh, when it starts to really gain popularity, it's essentially their flocked papers, which are attempts to copy silk damasks that are coming out, velvet damasks, excuse me, that are coming out of uh, the Orient through Venice. And then of course, Carol was talking about the whole trompe l'oeil aspect where you're actually copying wall paintings and later on even copying sort of very 
complex paneling during the decor period in the 1840s. So I, I really think that it's important to note that it has not always just been patterned, but there's been a very, very strong thread, as Carol said, of trompe l'oeil going through it um, as a low-cost alternative to a much, much more expensive uh, wall treatment. So it, it was meant to be, in many ways, a, a, a low-cost low alternative to carved surfaces or, or woven surfaces. I mean, at, there, was a, there was that aspect, but then it evolved into its own rights as a, a, a right. mural art form in its own rights. And it mm -hmm. was another way of decorating your interior. So it was not, you know, it shouldn't be locked up in the, the idea that it was, you know, the... the 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 poor man's solution to decorate his uh, his home right so that that you know i feel very strongly about that it was just another form of interior decorating i think especially when it started to move into uh repeating patterns there was no question that it it wasn't really copying anything um because people weren't really taking repeat pattern textiles in those days and putting them up on their walls. You know, it mm -hmm. just wasn't very common at all that you would see a diaper pattern in textile be glued to someone's walls. Something you only did with paper. You might've done it with stencils, which were a low cost alternative to wallpaper. And, and you know, and, and what about the, you know, the fact that they made decors that imitated architectural elements. And, and when I said that it really transformed the interior of the space, it, it really did. For instance, it gave you an, an illusion again, or mm -hmm. an impression of much greater space. It opened up the space. And you can use some of these decors uh, in a small room, a dark room, and all of a sudden it gives you the impression and the illusion of greater space. So it just sort of pops and it had that characteristic. And that was very, very specific of this mural art form, it, that it had that potential. I, I think that the, there was, you know, such wonderful drama and storytelling in these uh, <laughs> panoramic scenic papers, you know? And I mean, what we ha I have one in my dining room and uh, it's views of Brazil. And, you know, there's never a boring dinner party because there are all <laughs> these sort of provocative moments in the paper where, you know, Indians or, uh, or Aboriginals, whatever you want to call people living in the jungle in South America are, you know, using blow guns against the, you know, the colonial invaders and uh, there are monkeys swinging through the trees and all these sort of romantic images. You know, it's really visual storytelling and yeah. it's escapism. And that's I think true. that's a really important element of the decor papers. Now, Carol, and, and, and you have to remember that, you know, there were phases where exoticism, uh, faraway lands were so much in fashion and they were being, they were starting to be explored. So all of this, uh, you know, was part of a, of a trend of fashion. And Dufour said that uh, any, any mother with a curious child could teach that child history, geography, mythology, uh, plants, etc., through uh, a walk, uh, uh, through a wallpaper, scenic panoramic, rather. Excuse me. And Dufour, did he invent the scenic panoramic? Could 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 you explain what a scenic panoramic is? 
for people who might not be aware? Well, it's it's a it's a subject, a theme that wraps uh, wraps around a room, and it's shown in continuity. And uh, you can start it wherever you wish and end it wherever you wish. It was made to be very adaptable to the space in which it was being hung. Mm. After the panoramas, it was the 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 idea, the concept of englobing a, a total environment into mm -hmm. one room. And it was it resembled for people who don't haven't seen one before. It resembles a painting in that you know there are highly identifiable scenes and figures there. So that might be uh, a series of vignettes of important moments in the beginning of American history, or a series of vignettes of say different uh, important views of India where you might have the Taj Mahal in one panel and then the tomb of Humayun in another panel with figures in the front doing various things. So it's really like a, a, a having a full all the way around the room painting with lots of dramatic moments that are very exotic, usually coming from places that you'd never be able to travel to yourself. I love the fact that when I know Carol. One of I've, you and you know that one of my favorite scenic panoramics are the voyages of Captain Cook, um, which I, you introduced me to some years ago, and that idea that a paper was that was being, the first could, first one ever made, eighteen oh four by Dufour. That was the first panoramic. I I find the fact that wallpaper, papier peint scenic panoramics were able to address what were more or less contemporary news accounts um, in your decoration. I mean, it, it, was, it was like having a, an encyclopedia or, or a CNN documentary um, evolving all the way around you when you realize that Captain Cook had, had not died that long ago. So it was still contemporary news to a lot of people who would have been hanging that in say a dining room or, or um, despite the fact that, that you have that panel of, of where he's being clubbed, <laughs> clubbed to death in the, in the distance. No, no, you don't see his, he, you don't see his death. It's, it's suggested far away on a boat. <laughs> so you don't see him being executed. But then you have sort of the, the, the uh, what is the, the one that's the scenes of the American Revolution, which are battle scenes. Or those wonderful hunts. Well, there were a scenes. lot of battle scenes, uh, Battle of Austerlitz. There were a lot of battle scenes, a lot of military subjects also. Why, why do you think that was appropriate for, uh, for a wallpaper in a house, it's a, battle scenes? It's a good, it's a good question. Uh, I'm not too sure. It was news? <laughs> I don't know. What do you think, Chris? Uh, you know, I think that like any good manufacturer, they were making a full range of product. So they had things that told of faraway places like views of Switzerland. Then there would be themes that people were interested in, such as um, horse racing. There were multiple horse racing, you know, a lot, there were lots of horse racing fans. And then there was uh, the theme of battles. Then there was the theme of, uh, hmm, come up with some other ones, Carol. I mean, really exotic places was a big one. And then- well, There was the Bosphorus. Um, yeah. There was the, the battle of Helio, 
Heliopolis, which is, shows the, the French in Egypt. So that was very exotic also. Views of Switzerland that were very sort of beautiful, sort of uh, mountain pastorals. The Incas? Incas as well. That was, yeah, that was a fabulous one. And the, India, the views of India, the um, Hindustan paper Hindustan. is also and, very exotic with elephants. And, and, and Chinese procession. And, yeah. You know, there's, there's so yeah. many. And then, of course, there was a, some of it, I think, was really to sort of raise your status so that if you were provincial and you had views, monuments of Paris in your dining room, you know, it, it reflected your sort of taste and refinement. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah, think so. I agree. And I know that one of the things, Carol, that you and I were discussing at the last um, TAFAF show in, in Maastricht was that idea of you have a French manufacturer pr primarily, Dufour, early 19th century, and they may not have been to any of these places, but they were looking to, uh, for subject matter within other art forms to inspire them to recreate a landscape so that you could see, let's say, and I'm giving an example that um, if I'm incorrect, please one of you shoot me down. Say that Inca, the Inca tribal people, the, the, the Inca figures, you can see like three women dancing is actually the classical three graces in South American tribal wear. I mean, it's it's a very interesting it was melding of influences. Adaptation, yeah. They they yeah. they inspired themselves of drawings and prints that were being done by mm -hmm. artists who who went on some of these trips with some of the explorers, mm -hmm. and of course that was their initial inspiration. And these were themes and subjects that were in fashion at the time. Uh, and then there was the poetic license where they did their own interpretation sometimes uh, beyond, you know, the drawings or whatever that they would see. For instance, um, uh, Voyages of Captain Cook, Dufour uh, had Charvet do the drawings and he, he uh, apparently had been that part of the world and had done drawings, etc. So a lot of it, you know, was based on, um, on real material that they got their hands on mm -hmm. and worked with. I, I just wanted to say that also in terms of, I noticed when you were talking about the three graces and how that was sort of transposed and, you know, it was typical to use at that time. Uh, and if you look at religious paintings, you'll see this often where, you know, they would take iconography that people were familiar with and uh, from whether it was from their current time or whether it was, uh, you know, sort of uh, convention and iconography that everyone knew. So if you read Shakespeare, you know, there's sort of a hundred things you have to know to make sense of it. And everybody knew who Jove was. Everybody knew who certain gods were and so forth. And so these kind of familiar references are often interwoven into any art form, I think. And, uh, you know, when you see saints and Christ depicted oftentimes in an 18th century painting, you know, they may not be wearing, you know, the clothes that uh, were contemporary to the desert in the year mm -hmm. zero. Um, they'll be dressed in, you know, some sort of almost uh, contemporary clothing often, especially mm -hmm. in Renaissance paintings of saints and so forth. So it's pretty typical to see that kind of thing done in all art forms. I mean, with, the, with Dufour in, Carol, you said 1808 or 1804 for Captain Cook? 1804. 
So suddenly, this is an explosive creative moment in the history of wool coverings, let's just say. What was it about Dufour's creation with that first paper that really galvanized the community of homeowners in Paris and beyond in this art form? Well, I think it, well, I think it was the scale and I think it was the exotic, uh, the exotic uh, element in, in the subject matter. Uh, now, what preceded the, um, the voyages of Captain Cook was Dufour's English gardens, where the mm. scale is smaller. Uh, the scenic is, it's not really quite a full-fledged scenic yet. It's not as expansive. And, um, and the scale is smaller in terms of the figures and all of that. Uh, and that, that was, again, it was, you know, the, the, the fashion of everything English and particularly gardens. Mm. I think that at that time, that was 1804. So you had the revolution in 1789 and the reign of terror and massive chaos. For, I'm sure, you know, uh, Carol knows the French history much better than I do. But... Napoleon had firmly established control by 1804. Uh, there was a war economy, and I think there was definite decadence going on um, because people felt like things could end at any minute. And they were spending, I think they were spending a lot on uh, decorating at that point and being fairly flamboyant. So I think you had this sort of temporary lack of chaos, a lot of indulgent spending that was going on right around that time. And so that offered a market opportunity that Dufour went for. That's what I would think as a manufacturer. I kind of look at it always from the economic perspective. And you know, during the revolution, um, the, the activities did not cease. On the contrary, because with the new political system and all, they they needed new spaces. They needed to decorate them, and they were they were producing a lot of wallpapers. And there was a shortage of paper, so sometimes you found papers that were uh, decorated uh, on the reverse of a of a newspaper or something, and they were you know using all kinds of papers. So there was a lot of activity and um, a lot of demand at the time, strangely, and going into the Napoleonic era. How quickly, can, can you tell us a little bit about, about Dufour as, as a person and what he was doing prior to 1804? How long had his company been around? He started very early during the revolutionary period mm -hmm. uh, doing wallpapers. And he was in, in Macron, Burgundy. right? Yeah, in Macron, in Burgundy. He moved to Paris only in 1808, I think, or okay. yes, when he started becoming much more successful commercially. Now, how uh, big were, were these concerns? I mean, I know a lot of people, we think of, people think of wallpapers as, you know, coming out of machines, just sort of rolling out. But these are meticulously, laboriously created with block after carved block, mm -hmm. each one addressing a different part of a design. So we're, you're, you're yeah, talking a, hundreds, a thousands of blocks. A chain where each, each worker had his specialty. 
Mm. Well, uh, Réveillon, for instance, who had his uh, manufacture in Paris near the Bastille up until uh, the revolution, he uh, employed 300 workers in his factory. Mm. So, you know, that's, that's quite an amount. He even had a roof garden on his factory where he could entertain clients. He had a huge, <laughs> huge estate. And that's where the first Montgolfier took off because he was very friendly with the Montgolfier family that supplied him in paper. And the first Montgolfier took off from uh, Réveillon's uh, vast park and garden in, in Paris. Which then, of course, inspired its own wallpapers. That, that the blue yes. rise. Well, there's that wonderful story about Ami Argon that the Montgolfier balloon caught fire and burned up and they were had been summoned by the king to uh, do a demonstration of the balloon and their balloon literally burned up about three, four to five days before they were supposed to do the demonstration. And uh, they were all friends because they were members of the uh, 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 the I believe it was called the Lunar Society. They would travel to these meetings of uh, very learned men who knew a lot about science, and they would travel by moonlight. So they called themselves the Lunar Society. And uh, when the Montgolfier balloon burned up, they called their friend, Abi Argon, who had perfected a new lamp system that was much brighter, and they were using it in distilleries to try and get an extra shift in. They called him up and they brought a whole bunch of the lamps to Paris and they worked 24-7 for three days and they made a new balloon out of paper mache in something like 72 hours and got it to the palace on time and, and put the goats and sheep and whatever else was in it into it. And that's the event that you see depicted on so many of these engravings. And it's sort of a wonderful illustration of the confluence of technologies that was happening at the time. Of course, the Montgolfiers, who came up with the idea of balloons, were paper manufacturers and discovered the idea that hot air would rise something when they took one of their paper spills that they were lighting pipes with and noticed that when they threw it into the fire after they'd lit their pipe, it rose. And they were friends with Dufour because they sold him wallpaper and mm -hmm. they were also friends with Ami Argon because they were members of the Luder Society and everybody was, it was sort of a very small world of the cognoscenti at that time. It must have been a wonderful time to be alive, to be able to know, you know, sort of James Watt and Benjamin Franklin and Ami Argon and Dufour and have, you know, go to dinner with them and it must have been marvelous. And, and have all of these new technologies I, I mean, it, it must have been really thrilling because yes. for me, you know, looking at Chris going to Adelphi paper hangings and see how the papers are, are made with the blocks and, and to realize that what we're looking at now as, as sort of a traditional technique was then in many ways a new technique in a lot of ways in the sense of, of it being on the cutting edge of technological advancement in that genre. And a lot of the new techniques were, you know, if you came up with a new technique like the Irise or rainbow technique, which gave you an ability to sort of create these, what we would think of as psychedelic papers now, but really they were made to imitate the shimmer of silk. And um, a lot of these new technologies relating to wallpaper 
were being developed so you could broaden your product range and have something new to sell. And um, so they were constantly pushing the envelope and uh, constantly looking to adjacent technologies. So they were looking at textile manufacture. They were looking at all sorts of different ways that they could print more efficiently, get more effects, cut labor cost. It's very similar to today, really, in a lot of ways. I remember years and years ago having the great pleasure of going to see um, Moni out in the countryside. Mm, yeah. Patrice Moni having me to lunch at that, that great wallpaper firm. And I'd never seen it made before. And I remember this immense sort of a warehouse full of pigments in buckets all over the shelves and all of these carved wood blocks that were about the size of a, let's say, half of a coffee table book, sort mm. of that size, and an immense table. You know, I'm trying to think of yeah. not doing it. I'm not doing very well here. Um, what is it, like a foot by a foot and a half? Something like that? Maybe bigger? About 40 by 50 centimeters. Yes. He was showing me, which I'd never seen before in my life, nor had I smelled, rabbit glue. Which I thought was one of the most fascinating ingredients I'd yeah, ever heard yeah, of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Chris, can you tell us a bit about the technology behind it? Yeah, essentially what you have in any, you have to develop a, uh, what most people think of now as a dye, but it's a paint, which is you're using to get your, your color effects. And then you have to attach that to paper in a pattern. So first of all, they didn't have continuous roll paper until um, Fournier invented it. I think it starts to really come in in, in the, um, around 1820 or so, you see the first traces of it, but. 1830s. Yeah, it, it, there's a lot of overlap. Fournier invents it in 1816 or something like that. I can't remember the exact date. What sort of paper were they using before? Small sheets. They were using individual sheets. Yeah, they're individual sheets made on, on these screen frames that you dip into a bucket of uh, a, a vat of, uh, of rags that have been uh, beaten into a pulp. Mm -hmm. So then they have to glue them together to form a length. And the reason they started doing that is because the patterns for the damasks that they were printing um, were 44 inches long and the pieces of paper individually were not that long. So the, the individual pattern repeats. They couldn't print them like tiles. They had to actually glue a bunch of pieces together in order to get the full pattern mm. onto a paper. So anyway, you have to make the paint, which is made of three components. You have uh, your color element, and then you have water, um, which is your flow element so that you can spread it out. And then you have your binder element, which is what allows it to actually stick to whatever you're putting it on. And so in those days, they used uh, water, chalk, pigment, and, and animal skin glue or hide glue, uh, rabbit skin glue or whatever they, they could get their hands on, usually the cheapest stuff possible. And without the rabbit skin glue in it, it would just dry out and turn to dust and fall off the wall. So you'd make your paint out of that and then you would uh, make your roll of paper by gluing the sheets of paper together into a uh, 33 foot long 
piece of paper, which is also what, what we call a roll as well. And then you lay it out on a lawn table and paint it with the background color and then hang that up from the ceiling to dry. And then um, you'll roll it back up and you take it over to a printing table, which looks like a workbench essentially. And there you'll have a, an inking pad, also called a bock or a sieve, with blankets in it. And you would paint the paint on the blankets and then tap your stamp into it, your block, which would have a pattern on it. And once it had color on it, you would place it on the paper, apply pressure on the top, and then lift it off. And each color has to be printed with a different block. It's hard to explain it quickly, but that I think gives you a quick overview. And if you want to learn more about it, you can go to our website at Adelphi Paper Hangings, and we have videos of it being done so that you can watch. It's, it's pretty fun. And it's also the, the laborious nature of it. I mean, each color has to be stamped and then dried and then go back to you do your over. Everything is, it, it's, it's like a jigsaw puzzle. Complex. There is a what we would nowadays refer to as a certain zen to it. I mean, it is marvelous because as you start to add each layer of color, the paper sort of comes alive, and uh, there reaches this point where it sort of all comes together. And it's also uh, it's a very repetitive task. And precise. And precise. And one of the problems with that is. It's very precise, yeah. So you have to focus and you have to do the same thing over and over again and, and it's very physical. Everybody who works for us is trained to do everything and that way we can move people around. So one day they'll be making paint, one day they'll be drawing patterns and one day they'll be printing. Because we found that one of our printers started to get problems with her back because she was a very good printer and we kept her on printing all the time. And, and because of that, we ended up just training everybody to do everything. And it, it makes it a lot less boring and uh, a lot easier on their bodies. But I think it, uh, in the old days, you know, under Dufour and people like that, I think if you were a printer, you stayed a printer. And um, I think it was very hard on you physically. Now, Carol, one of the things that, that I don't think people might know is that many of these papers were put on, uh, were put on display in international exhibitions where they were not only technical achievements, but artistic achievements, national uh, pride achievements, and gold medal after gold medal after gold medal in, in these creative aspects. Because you've always been very concerned and and a big supporter of the idea that wallpapers are, are, are art. Mm -hmm. And I think people in these 19th century exhibitions also recognize that, that they were works of art. Yeah, that the, the universal exhibitions were very, very important for, for this, this area of uh, what was called at the time industrial arts. They helped tremendously the reputation and the development of some of these manufacturers. And so it was very important. And that's why sometimes at that, at that point, uh, even before under Dufour, for instance, but particularly at that time, say the, in the, the mid-19th century for sure, and then thereon, 
the manufacturers were using, were uh, commissioning artists to do the well-known artists of the time to do the designs of a of a decor that they wanted to present at one of these expositions. So the, the, those were major events. You're right. They they did a lot to um, well to develop the reputation of certain manufacturers and mm. entice people to become um, interested in this in this art form, which was considered an industrial art product at the time. But it really got its uh, lettre de noblesse, as one says. <laughs> so they, they, that was. Uh, important that those were important events and and was terrific exposure mm. for the uh, the artists and the manufacturers now can you tell us a little bit about the wallpaper museum in Rixheim? i've i've never been and i've always wanted to know what it's like it's a charming uh, museum little museum it's right across from the old zubea manufacturer where where they're still active it's a lovely little museum, but the, the, the principal collection is really at the Musée des Arts Décoratifs in Paris, okay. which has the most fabulous and most exten- extensive collection in the world, 300,000 or 400,000 documents. 400, yeah. And, and wow. that is really extraordinary. Uh, unfortunately, you don't get to see it much. You have to sort of make arrangements ahead of time so somebody can show you part, some parts of the collection. But that that really is the most stupendous collection um, in the world. The The little museum in Rixheim is charming, but it's I find it a little limited when you know the collection at the Musée des Arts But at least the advantage of the museum in Rixheim is you get to see things because, you know, it's small, but it's all, well, not all ex- exhibited, but a, a lot is out. Mm. Yeah, they have the entire collection of the Zubair pattern books. I don't know if they're still exi- if they're still if you can get to them, but I remember Bernard Jacquet took me upstairs to an attic and we pulled out all of these pattern mm-hmm. books with absolutely untouched papers, very large scale samples. You know, starting in 1804, I think when they when they bought out Spurlau, was it that they bought out? But um, they were every single paper ever printed was there, and I'm not sure if the museum still has access to those or not. I I think we may have snuck up there a bit when we were, because um, Zubair owned some stuff, the museum owned other stuff, and the buildings were linked. It was all part of one building. Before we end this episode of of the podcast, I'd love to ask each of you whether it's a repeating pattern, whether it's a scenic panoramic, what is one particular wallpaper or papier peint that stands out in your mind as an absolute favorite, either from a technological standpoint or a design standpoint? That's a hard question to answer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Isn't it, Chris? Mm-hmm. How about the top three? Let's do okay, top three, three each really quickly. So my favorite uh, Scenic is probably one of those ones printed for the exhibition, which was, and it's called the the Prodigals, and it's a scene of uh, people passed out after a night of debauchery. <laughs> <laughs> then there's a wonderful paper that we reproduced that I found in an antique shop in Newport that was a. Uh, very 1850s. It looked like it, you know, if Liberace's 
father had gone to a bordello, this would have been on the walls. It had two different colors of flock, gilded roses and a crimson background. And we, 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 we uh, donated some to all the big museums. It was signed. And then we also, uh, someone from New Orleans ordered a huge order and we got to actually make it again, which was wonderful because it was somewhere between beautiful and garish and uh, not the sort of thing most people have the courage to take on in their own house. And then lastly, I would say uh, my other personal favorite is a piece that, that Carol sold me, um, which is a wonderful sort of psychedelic op art looking pattern from about 1804 that we call French Wave, which was during this period in the early 19th century when things got very, very abstract. That document is so modern and it's yeah. directoire period and so what are, what are your three favorites? Oh, that's hard. Well, one of my favorites is um, a panel that I have, one of the 12 scenes of the Psyche in Cupid, but of the very first edition of 1816, or 18, uh, 1812, perhaps. And this one is not only in Grisaille, it's in Grisaille and Sepia. And uh, I had acquired many, many years ago four scenes in the Grisaille and Sepia, and I had never seen this before. And I inquired a lot uh, amongst all of the, the, you know, the scholars and the connoisseurs to try to understand, and no one had an answer. And we finally came to the conclusion that it was probably a special request at the first printing, the first edition, by a client who asked, mm -hmm. could you please print it in Sepia and Grisaille? So I, I have... Uh, retain one of those four and so that is definitely one of my favorites and then as uh, if i have to give you another one i would say uh, well i love the art deco period also i find that there are some so many beautiful things that were done uh, there's andre Groult. there's a small uh, pattern that i have which i think is absolutely wonderful and sometimes you know some of the dominoes are also very modern looking so and these uh, are the ones printed on the original the single the small sheet. sheets of paper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Carol Thibault Pomerantz, Christopher Orstrom, thank you all very much for joining me today on the ADS Theat to talk about the history and allure of hand-printed wallpaper. Thank you for bringing us together. The ADS Theat is produced and edited by Diane Dragan and Emma Wurtzman. Music by Circus Marcus. All rights reserved by Condé Nast. To reach us about this episode or any other episodes, find us on social media at ArcDigest or email us at letters at arcdigest.com.